Well, welcome. Well, I'm glad you're here. Um, for those who don't know me, I'm Matthew, the Director of Youth Ministries here at Crossroads. We're so glad you guys came. I hope you all had a great Christmas. Um, how many guys love a good story? I'm a sucker for a good story. I love stories with a good story or character development, you know, just a good plot. I just love a good story. And growing up, I read a lot of books. And some of my favorite books were, you know, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, Narnia, Harry Potter. And just, I loved those three book series because each of them, the authors did this fantastic job at creating these epic fantasy worlds that when you just read the books, you just find yourself immersed in this amazing world. And I just loved how each of them had these amazing plots, these story arcs, and just the character developments found in each of those three book series. Like I said, I'm just a sucker for a good story. And as I grow, grew up, I started watching more television and watching more TV, because I didn't do that as much as a kid. I think I watched more TV my freshman year of college than I did probably my whole life leading up to that. That's um, what you mean to get a good education from Bethel. Um, <laughs> Funny, funny story, I wasn't even going to say this, but the f week leading up to my freshman spring finals, I watched all seven seasons of Boy Meets World in seven days. <laughs> and not going to lie, that was one of my best final performances I ever had. <laughs> but no, I'm a sucker for a good story. And something I just found out when I started watching more TV and more movies is that I loved watching all of the behind-the-scenes footage of these TV shows and movies because it showed how they were able to make these visual masterpieces, if done right, of course. And I, just, I, I loved seeing how they used the camera perspectives to make all the hobbits look tiny compared to everybody else, or all of the makeup that went into making these orcs look terrifying in Lord of the Rings. Or when it comes to the Star Wars original trilogy, how they were to use the limited technology that they had and to use figurines and these models to make these space battles come alive. What I noticed is that more I learned about the behind the scenes or what took place in order to make this movie or this TV show come to life, the more I ended up liking that movie. One of my favorite movies of all time has my favorite nugget of behind the scene knowledge and it's from Princess Bride. And there's a picture up behind me. Um, so they were filming this movie, and they got done for the day, and people were going home. And the actor in the middle that plays Inigo Montoya had left the scene or set for the day, and the director realized he needed to reshoot the scene. But the actor couldn't get back in time for the scene, so he's like, any good director would do. He saw the cardboard cutout of him on the side of the you know, set, and he's like, oh, let's place that cardboard cutout of the actor in the middle of this scene. And so as you see right there, Inigo Montori right there is a cardboard cutout. <laughs> he doesn't move. And the first time I watched a movie, I thought it was very awkward that the guy just stands in one pose the entire scene for the 30 seconds that the scene was. But as I learned it, it was because it was a cardboard cutout and it's not a real human being. Now, when I learned that, my love for Princess Bride, which I never thought could get any more, because I absolutely love this movie, just increased by tenfold. And it's my favorite thing when I watch this movie with others, which I watch it about five times a year, let's be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm weird. 
But every time I watch this movie with somebody, I just can't help but point out that that guy is a cardboard cutout. Because <laughs> it's just it's an awesome piece of just behind-the-scenes information. And so what I've noticed is the more I understand of what goes on to make a visual masterpiece behind the scenes, the more I end up loving that story or TV show or whatever that is. So we're finishing up another Christmas season, another Christmas has come and gone. And before we just move on and leave this Christmas season behind, I just want to take this morning again and look back at the Christmas story. I don't know, for me, and I've heard some other people say this, it just did not feel like it was Christmas this year. Partially because we had no snow up to Christmas Day, practically. Or maybe it was because of COVID-19 that it just didn't feel like the Christmas season. And when that happens, sometimes you lose the magic or the miraculousness of the season. And most of us, we have heard the Christmas story, and many of us have probably heard it a hundred times, right? We hear it multiple times a year every single Christmas. And when we hear a story that often, it can be very easy to lose the significance of the story, to lose the miraculousness, the awe, and the wonder that is in the Christmas story. And so today, I want to pause before we leave this Christmas behind and look again at the Christmas story from a new perspective. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to open them up to Revelation chapter 12. And we're going to look at it there. But before we do that, I want to show you a clip from my favorite Christmas movie. Because there's a lot of reenactments, there's a lot of movies. But I want to show you a clip from my favorite Christmas movie. So if you look at the screen behind me. I never thought a baby kicking the butt out of a dragon would look so cute. <laughs> now, you're probably all wondering, or you're probably thinking, actually, that when you saw that video, now, like, that is what I think of when I think of Christmas, right? All of you were thinking that, right? <laughs> that is the Christmas story right there. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are wondering, why on earth am I showing a video of a baby kicking the stuffing out of a dragon? And you're... Good to wonder that. But that's what we're going to look at today when we dive into Revelation chapter 12. But before we do that, I want to pray. Heavenly Father, as we dive into our passage today, I just pray you give me the words to speak, Lord. That is you that give me the words. It's your message here today, not mine, Lord. I pray for the caffeine to start kicking in. And I just pray that their ears are opened to whatever you have for me to say, Lord, this morning. So I just pray you bless this morning, here and now, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, Revelation chapter 12. If you have read this book, 
or read any of it or have opened up and looked at it, you understand what I say when I say that this is anything but easy to understand. This book is filled with imagery, symbols, metaphors, allegory in every single verse of this book. And if you don't have a complete understanding of the imagery used throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's very hard to understand the meaning and understand the reason for this book. And I don't know about you, not many people, myself included, have a full understanding of the imagery used in the Old Testament and the New Testament and able to understand this book. So it is a very hard book to understand. And if you guys have never read this book, that's all right. I'm going to give you a quick little context of what this book was written for and the meaning behind it, all right? So the, the word revelation means apocalypse. In our Western worldview, when we think of the word apocalypse, we think of fire and brimstone. We think of the end of the world, end times, these epic battles, you know, or zombies and whatnot. We think of the end of the world. But that's not what apocalypse means in Greek. What apocalypse means in Greek is to reveal something new. And that is what apocalyptic literature is. It is the revealing of something new, revealing a new perspective, usually one of divine nature, i.e. from God. It is God showing a vision or something, a new perspective to a group of people who without God telling them, they would not have been able to get there on their own. That is what apocalyptic literature is. And that's exactly what this book is. It's a revelation from God revealing something new or a new perspective to the original readers. And while this genre is very uncommon for us today, nobody writes in this apocalyptic literature anymore. It was a very common genre and literary style for the people of that day. They knew how to interpret it. They knew how to understand all the symbols and all the images. But because it's not a common style for us, it is hard for us to fully grasp and understand it. And it's also important to remember that this book was written to a specific group of people. And it was written to a specific context of those people. And if we take the Bible, especially Revelations, we try to interpret it into our context or into our worldview without taking into account the original reader's context and their background and the world that was happening back then, we are very likely to misinterpret the Bible and Revelation. And I'm sure many of you guys maybe have heard people who have taken Revelation and have tried to put it into their worldview or into their American geo geopolitical situation, and they come out with this very poor, misleading interpretation and meaning for Revelation. And so when we read the book of Revelation, it's very important to look at why it was written and who it was written to and what is the context, historical background of who it was written to. You see, we see in the first three chapters of Revelation, it's written to these seven churches in Asia Minor. And these seven churches in Asia Minor were going through persecution, they were going through hatred, hardships, and ultimately they were being killed for what they believed in. And so life for them was very tough. And this book was written to give them hope and encouragement in their specific context. Revelation is this vision that was given to John to give to these seven churches for them to have hope, and encouragement in the context of their specific situation. 
in the persecution, in the hatred, in the hardships, in the fear of being dead for what they believed in or being killed for what they believed in. This book was to bring hope and encouragement to them. So that's what Revelation is. So we're going to dive into our passage. But before we do, disclaimer, we don't got the time for me to go through every single image or symbol that we're going to have in this passage or we'd be here till like 5 p.m. tonight. And I know the Vikings don't play, so there's really no need to get home quick. And I know some of you guys want to watch the Packer game, but we really don't care about that. But, so we don't have time this morning to look at all the symbols and all the images and really go into depth of what each of them mean, all right? So just disclaimer, I'm not going to do that. If you want to come up to me and talk to me afterwards, I'd love to kind of give you the stuff I know from all the research I've done. But we don't have time to go look at all of them this morning. All right, let's dive into the passage. Starting at verse 1, we see, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was pregnant, and she was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. So remember, this is a vision. And we're introduced to this woman in this cosmic backdrop. Like I said, we don't have time to go into all the symbols, but these symbols mean it's trying to show that this woman represents Israel and is giving birth to Jesus. So it's showing that Jesus is coming out of Israel, right? He's coming from the line of David. And so this is a story of this woman who represents Israel giving birth to Jesus. And if we continue in verse 3, we see this. Another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. So here we're introduced now to the devil, or the Satan. And as we read in the later verse, this is the serpent from Genesis 3 that's from the garden that tempts Adam and Eve. This is the devil, the deceiver, or the Satan, the accuser. And at the end of verse 4, we see that the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Merry Christmas! Now that is an epic nativity scene, is that not? Jesus is about to be born, and the dragon just hovering over it, ready just to snatch it in its mouth. How many of you guys actually see a dragon in any of the manger scenes or the nativity scenes that you guys see over the Christmas holidays? I have only ever seen one, but it's become one of my favorite traditions after I saw this passage in college that every single Christmas, my mom has this manger scene that she sets up. And I had this little toy dragon, this little, like, Lego dragon from when I was a kid. And I like to sneak it into her manger and have it just hovering over baby Jesus in the manger. And my mom then goes, because she doesn't like when I do this, she takes it and she hides it. So then I go and I find where she hides it, and I put it back in the manger. And then she goes, she takes it and she hides it, and I go find it and I put it back. And it's just this cat and mouse game, back and forth. It's just become this Christmas holiday game or joke with me and my mom. The funny thing is she hides it in the exact same place every single time. So it's very easy for me to go find it and put it back in. So mom, if you're watching this, find some better hiding spots. But I, I encourage you, though, next year when you put your manger scene up, go find a dragon and place it in there as a reminder of this epic cosmic battle that's happening behind the scenes of the Christmas story. So often we think of this nativity scene as this peaceful and beautiful scene, right? Where Mary's just holding baby Jesus, 
And all the shepherds just googly eyes over, just, ooh, such a cute little baby, right? I mean, which is true, I bet he was a pretty cute baby. But there isn't this epic cosmic battle happening behind the scenes that we don't always think about. And so we left off with Satan just ready to devour Jesus when he was born. So in verse 5 it says that she gave birth to a male child, one to, who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So this passage is quoting from Psalms 2 verse 9, just to show that this baby that's being born is the Messiah. So it's telling the readers that this is the story of Jesus' life. And the dragon was unable to devour him because he was able to go up in victory into heaven. And so we see here, it's giving Jesus his life by talking about his birth and his ascension into heaven. It skips all the details in between because the reader or the author knew that the reader had or knew the story of Jesus. They knew that Jesus came, lived a life, and died on the cross. So he did not need to give them the whole detail of the story because that's not the point of this chapter. So he gives the birth and he gives the ascension after the resurrection. The point that this is the story of Jesus' life and it's the battle against the dragon and God and Jesus. And so we see here is that the dragon failed to stop Jesus from dying on the cross. In the verse 6, we see that the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she was to be nourished for 1,260 days. And now a war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer a place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent, right? That's the imagery from the garden in Genesis 3, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, the vision goes into this heavenly song in the next couple of verses of what just happened. And it says, And I, I being John, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down and the accusers who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimonies. For they loved not their lives unto, or even unto death. What I love about the book of Revelation is that it sets up these epic cosmic battles between the demons and between the angels. But every single time it shows this battle, it is won and by something that we would consider anticlimactic. In this passage, how was the dragon defeated? It wasn't just because the angels by chance happened to overpower the demons with their swords. It was because of the blood of the lamb. It was because Jesus humbled himself and died on the cross for our behalf so that we may receive grace and forgiveness for our sins. That was the defeating blow against the dragon. It was Jesus going to the cross that defeated the dragon. It wasn't because of this physical battle between angels and demons that had the defining you know, blower of the battle. It was all because Jesus went to the cross. You see, the devil wanted to stop Jesus from going to the cross at all costs. That was what it meant by devour him. He did not want Jesus to die on the cross. That's why he tempted him in the, you know, in the desert saying, just bow down and worship me and I'll give you the earth. Just don't die because he knows if he dies, he is defeated. And so what you see here is that Jesus goes to the cross, dies, and the devil's like, oh boy. I'm doomed.
What we see in the rest of this passage is that the dragon is cast down to earth and he wages war against humanity, against God's people, and against the church. And we're not going to read the rest of the passage, just a couple more verses. I'll let you guys go home and read that yourself. But what we see in those verses is that every single time the dragon tries to attack God's people and the church, he is thwarted by God. He goes after the woman who is Israel, and he is thwarted by God. He goes after her offspring, which is the church, and he is thwarted by God. In verse 12 it says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth, for the sea and woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. I love this passage because every single time I hear that his time is short and he is full of wrath, I think of a little kid throwing a tantrum. For you who are parents and have had kids, it's that little girl in the grocery store who is wailing and crying because mommy didn't let her have a candy bar. That's how I envision, the, that's how I envision you know, the dragon or the devil here is that he's a little kid throwing a tantrum because he didn't get what he wanted. He didn't want him to go to the cross, but he did, and now he's defeated. So let's throw a little tantrum. It's this little girl, that's how I envision it, of him just wailing on the ground. Maybe it's not going to pop up. It's just a little gif of a girl just wailing on the ground, throwing a fit. Yeah. All right. So what we see is he goes after humanity in the rest of the passage, and every single time he continues to not get what he wants. And so he just gets more angry, throws a little hissy fit, and continues to wage war. So why did I want to look at this passage this morning? Well, I, I, my goal is that you walk away to this morning you know, with a renewed sense of awe and wonder at the miraculousness of this Christmas story. But I also just want to look at what does this passage mean for us. Because you see, this passage doesn't just cover the Christmas story, but it goes and it covers the entire narration of God's redemptive plan for humanity. So you see, the Christmas story is just one scene or just one chapter of this complete book. And so when you celebrate Christmas, you don't just celebrate the birth and just end at the birth, but you continue going into Christmas or into Easter and into the Ascension and into Pentecost. It's one complete narration of God's redemptive plan for humanity. And so my first point this morning is that the Christmas story is the story of God waging war against evil. It's the battle against sin. It's the battle against the devil or the Satan. It's this battle against this epic dragon. And the birth of Jesus is just the first scene of this epic story. My second point this morning is that the Christmas story is the story of Jesus' victory on the cross over evil. It's the story of Jesus Christ's victory over evil. He came, he saw, and he conquered. Just the easiest way to put it. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus claimed victory over the devil. Like I said earlier, it was that act of him dying on the cross that gave him victory over Satan, and now he's a little girl throwing a tantrum and just waging war against humanity, knowing that his time is short. 
In verse 10 of the passage, we saw that we see that the kingdom of God has come down here on earth. It says that now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. You see, through Jesus dying on the cross, he gained victory over our sins that we no longer have to live in bondage to our sins and the brokenness of this world. And he established the kingdom of God here and now. But it doesn't take long to notice that we're still in this awkward stage where the kingdom of God has been established, yet the dragon is still throwing a hissy fit and waging war, and there's still brokenness and evil in this world. See, we're in this in-between stage where this tribulation of sorts is what it's called, where we're waiting for the kingdom to come to completion, but we're still living in a broken and evil world, full of pain, full of suffering, full of hardships and heartaches and so on. And it can be so easy to lose focus and to lose sight of Jesus' victory on the cross. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this book was written to the seven churches who were facing persecution and hardships and were being killed for their faith. And I'm sure they were beginning to feel hopeless. And they were probably beginning to like, is it worth following Christ if what that means is I'm going to be persecuted, I'm going to be hated, and I'm going to be killed? Is it really worth following Christ? I'm sure that's what they were probably beginning to think. And so this book was written to them to give them hope and encouragement in their situation and to point out that, yes, it is so worth it. That the pain and suffering that they were experiencing was just a sliver in comparison to eternal life. Just a speck compared to the grandeur and splendidness that is eternal life. This is called an eternal perspective of hope. It is looking at the final outcome and, to- and realizing that the final outcome is totally worth any current situation of brokenness that one might experience. It's an eternal perspective of hope. The hope to come and what I could receive after death is so worth anything I might face now. And this leads me to my final and third point this morning, is that the Christmas story is a story of hope in a broken world. And so what is this hope and this final outcome that's so worth it? Well, we see it towards the end of Revelation in chapter 21, verses 1 to 5, what this is. When I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The sea in the ancient days is the symbol of just chaoticness and unrest. And so that's the imagery of why the sea is no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven and from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And this is the kicker right here. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That is why there's a reason 
to persevere, to endure anything the world kicks at you, whatever that tantrum of a throwing demon sends your way. It's so worth it because that right there. Revelation was to give them hope and encouragement to endure what they were facing, to stand firm in their faith. At the very beginning of Revelation, we see these seven letters to the churches, and they end with the same phrase for every single one. To the one who conquers, and then each of them goes and gives this imagery of eternal life. So it says, to the one who conquers, they shall receive eternal life. And that word conquer, if you look at the Greek, it means to overcome, but it means to prevail and to stand firm in their faith. And so this letter was sent to them saying, I know you're facing a lot of crap. Life is difficult. But prevail. Stand firm in your faith because it is all worth it in the end. Because momentary inflictions are nothing compared to the glory experienced in a blissful and beautiful eternity free from brokenness and evil in the presence of God and in the perfect unity and fellowship and community of fellow believers. And the amazing thing is we don't have to wait till eternity to experience the hope and joy found in that. Because when Jesus died on the cross, the kingdom of God has been established here on earth. And so we are citizens of the kingdom of God, and we can experience that hope and that joy now in our lives. Amidst the persecution, amidst the hardships and trials of life, or anything the devil throws our way, we can experience the hope and joy here and now on this side of eternity. And it's all about a change of perspective, of what you are focusing on. Are you going to sit in self-pity? Or are you going to focus on the hope and joy that you can have now? We read in Philippians chapter 4 that Paul was able to have hope and joy in any and all circumstances that he faced. And if you guys know anything about the life of Paul, he experienced anything you can think of. He, had, he went through poverty. He went through times he was hungry. He was beaten to the point of death, stoned to the point of death. He was imprisoned for many of his you know, years of his life. He, and then he was beheaded. He experienced any kind of thing that you could think of or any kind of hardship that you could think of in life, he experienced. Yet we see in Philippians 4 that in any and all the circumstances of his life, good and bad, he was able to be content and to find joy and hope in those situations. And we read in chapter 4, verses 11, it says, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And here comes one of the most commonly known Bible verses. I can do this through the Christ or through him who gives me strength, or I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. How can you be intent in any and all situations? It's by the strength that God provides you. It's by asking God, give me strength to find the hope and the glimmer of hope or be content in this situation even though life might stink. It's that change of perspective. Am I going to wallow and sit in the misery or am I going to stand up and say, okay, God, give me strength. How can I see the joy in this situation? Where's the good? Remind me of what is to come. 
That's what the book of Revelation was given. It was given to these churches to give that glimmer of hope, to remind them that God is going to win in the end. God has already won. Don't lose faith. We're coming to the end of 2020. And it's been a year of turmoil. It's been a year of pain, of hardships. Whether it's from COVID-19 or the election, you know, process leading up to the election and even after the election. Or maybe it's, you know, due to financial issues and problems, loss of a job. Maybe you've lost a loved one or a friend. This year has been a pretty bad year in the history books. It's been a year of addictions, of depression, drug use, and suicides all being at a record high. And we're concluding what our Western minds would call an apocalyptic year. This is an end-of-the-world kind of year, as many of us could think of. It's a year of hopelessness for many. But it's my hope that we, as we start this new year, that we will not let fear creep into our lives, nor allow our situations or circumstances deter us from experiencing the joy and the hope that comes in Christ's victory on the cross. So as we close this Christmas season, let's remember how the Christmas story is the first scene of this epic story of God's victory over evil. And that we can live in freedom from that evil and freedom from the bondage and brokenness of this world. So when you think of Christmas, remember the dragon in the manger hovering over little baby Jesus. And just remember that baby kicked the butt out of the dragon. And we too can kick that dragon's butt through the word and our testimony of what Jesus did on that cross. That dragon, all it is is a little girl throwing a tantrum trying to ruin your world and your lives. But that's it. He knows he's doomed. Just remember, we are living in victory because of what Jesus did, coming down as a baby and dying on the cross. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, let us not forget the amazingness of this Christmas story, Lord. How you came as a baby and died on the cross so that we may have life and have it abundantly, Lord. That we are no longer enslaved to the bondage of sin, Lord but you have set us free in victory and that we are citizens of the kingdom of God waiting for you to come back and to complete that or bring it to completion, Lord. So I just pray you give us that mind of contentment in our, any situation that we're facing, Lord, that we can find the joy amidst the suffering, Lord. So I pray you remind us to seek that out and ask for your strength to endure anything that 2020 or 2021 might throw at us because we are living in victory because of what you did on the cross. Heavenly Father, amen. I 